You're listening to Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. We are starting a new series today, um, and it is the book of Exodus, actually the first half of the book of Exodus. And I'm pretty excited about it because the book of Exodus is a challenging and exciting book full of these great stories that we're familiar with, like the parting of the Red Sea, Passover, and the plagues and the building of the tabernacle and the wandering through the wilderness and all these great stories that we have read in chunks, but maybe we don't understand the arc of the story as a whole. And so I want us to spend a couple months looking at how Exodus fits into the larger picture of scripture and and what it is that God is doing in the book of Exodus for the people of Israel and what that might mean for us today and maybe our similarities between Israel and us. And so today we're going to start with just kind of a brief overview of Exodus because uh, I want us to kind of have the, the flyby, you know, version of, of what we're studying here. So book of Exodus, there's one um, <clears throat> kind of main, I'm all out of order here. One main thing that we can understand from the book of Exodus And it is that this book is the book that shows us how God forms Israel to be his unique people in the world. Um, What's neat about this book, and it's funny that you don't, just like with the song and the lyrics that pop out at you, like you can read all these stories out of context and you go, oh, that's a great story and this is a great story and I read this snippet here and that snippet here. Um, But when you look at the Bible and you read what happens in Genesis, And then you read what happens in Exodus, you'll find that Exodus being the second book of the Bible, that there is stuff that hasn't happened yet until the book of Exodus. So Exodus is a book of firsts in a lot of ways. Um, And this is really the first time when God starts to um, refine a group of people for himself. Um, He started with creation, right, in Genesis, and he made the whole world, and everything's wonderful, and and there was the garden, and then Adam and Eve sinned, and they were kicked out of the garden, and then you read the story of Noah and the Tower of Babel, and people were straying from God, and God was constantly trying to figure out how to redeem this people back from sin, and he was working this process out in, in the lives of his people, and then you get down through time, and you have a guy named Abraham who's living far away from the land that God had designed his people to live in, and He decided to choose Abraham and make a promise to Abraham that his nation would be great and it would be blessed and it would be wonderful all through Abraham. Um, And then time goes on a little bit further and Abraham's promise hasn't been fulfilled by the close of Genesis. So Abraham has died, but he never saw the fruit of his promise that God made him. Um, And yet God has promised that Israel would be his unique people in the world. And Genesis is the part that picks up. It says, okay. Now, the very first sentences in in Exodus are, and the people of Abraham multiplied and multiplied and multiplied, and there were generations, and they grew and they grew and they grew, and there were a lot of them. (laughs) And so the very beginning of Exodus is the beginning of the fulfillment of what Abraham was promised in Genesis. Um, And then the entire book of Exodus is the idea of God taking a people who were far from him, who had for 400 years been disconnected from him and living in slavery to a nation that did not worship God. And so they were influenced by all of Egypt's gods and the way things were uh, in Egypt, a very pagan society. And uh, a, a group of people that were formed by that simply because they lived there. And he was going to take that people and he was going through a bunch of circumstances to form them into a very unique culture, different than anything else in the entire world, a culture that was formed after his own heart 
and for his own purposes, and that was going to be his people down through time. And this is what the book of Exodus shows us, is how do we worship God? Right? This is the very first time that we see God say, this is how I want you to react to me. This is how I want you to worship me. This is how I want you to live with one another. Um, this is how life should be best lived out. Um, and he does some miraculous things in the book of Exodus, and the people struggle. There's something in the book of Exodus called the apostasy cycle. Fancy term for something that you guys probably recognize in your own life. I love God. I love God. Ooh, shiny. I'm distracted. I have sinned now. I'm so far away from God. I feel so sad. Could he ever love me again? I love God. God loves me. Ooh, shiny. And you know this cycle that we get into in our lives, right? And it looks something like that. We're, we're passionately following God. And then we get scared or distracted or something happens. And then we're no longer following God. And we wonder, how did we get here? And then we get drawn back to God and we're like, we're on fire for God. But then there's this cycle, right, in our lives. Well, that's the cycle that Israel went through. It's called the apostasy cycle. They went through it. You can read the entire Old Testament is basically the apostasy cycle. But you start to see the formation of that in Exodus where they are saved from Egypt and then they're in the wilderness. Oh, I wish we could go back to Egypt, right? And the cycle starts for them. And God is going to work in their lives to produce in them a character and a quality that is like him. The way he would want it to be as if they never fell, as if they never left the garden. He's going to be redeeming the people down through time. And Exodus is a book where we really get to see that take root. Um, now, Exodus is part of a larger story, right? It's part of the Bible, right? But within the Bible, we've got different chunks. So I've got the Old Testament and the New Testament. So Exodus is in the Old Testament. Um, Exodus is the second book in the Old Testament. It's part of five books. Does anybody know what they are? Books of law. Okay, the books of the law, but what are they? Genesis, Exodus, Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, and Deuteronomy. Those are the Pentateuch. That's the fancy word for it. It basically means book of five, okay? Uh, so take that and, and, and piece of trivia and share that with someone today. Um, it means book of of five because they were originally one book um, and it was the story that was written down the story of God's people originally it was all passed down orally so all of the uh, creation narratives and all of the stuff that happened in Exodus and all of the laws in Leviticus and all of the chronicling that happens in numbers that we all love to read numbers right like it's our favorite book in the whole entire world right so much good there we'll, we'll teach you that at some point um, and then Deuteronomy, which kind of revisits everything that had already been ever been done in the first four, right, um, was all oral tradition. For a long, long time in the generation of Israel, this was passed down orally. And then it was written down for us. And we have five books that chronicle the history of the beginning of time and the formation of God's people. And Exodus is part of that book. And so we have to understand it in the context of the Pentateuch, and we have to understand it in the context of of all of scripture. Um, so it's really hard to start Exodus right at Exodus because then you start reading these names and you're like, who are these people? And why are we reading about these people? And what point do these people have? And why are they in Egypt anyway? And what's going on? And what does it matter that Pharaoh forgot these people? And, and why is all this happening? We have to remember that there's a context and the context is Genesis. And so um, keeping in mind that this is a book where God forms Israel to be his unique people in the world, 
There are five themes that I want to point out to you that we'll see over and over and over again in this book. These are not all of the themes in Exodus. Exodus is a rich book. It is like the filet mignon, okay, of the Old Testament. It is like the best yumminess of yummy, and it is so rich, and you could chew on it for years, not really scratch the surface about what it means. Do you know we're only doing the first half of Exodus in this series? The second half of the book of Exodus um, is... Uh, when God says, okay, this is how I want you to worship me. It's the second half is a book of worship. And it, it, it's God teaching people how to worship him. And it's a lot of details like what linens should the priests wear and what cloths should you use to build the tabernacle and let's hammer out some iron and some bronze and blah, blah, blah. And you read it and you're like, who cares, right? Because it sounds like a shopping list and then a list of things that get built. But in reality, every single one of those elements points you to Jesus and helps you worship Jesus and we'll have to study that another time because that would, we could be there for a very long time. So the first half of the book, we're just going to look at some themes. And these are some, but not all, of the themes we will see. Let's start um, with the very first theme, shall we? Um, and, uh, and it is the promise. So if you will, flip with me to Genesis. Remember, we've got to go in the context here. Genesis. Chapter 12, 1 through 3. This is a really famous portion of Scripture. This is the time in Scripture when God makes a promise to Abraham. Um, and in my undergraduate work, I had to memorize this passage. I memorized it just well enough to pass the class, right? So shame on me. <laughs> I couldn't recite it from heart by now. Um, and uh, I hope my professor didn't see me say that. Um, so this is the Abrahamic promise it's in Genesis chapter 12, and it is 1 through 3. And this is the promise that we see fulfilled in Exodus. And it says this, The Lord said to Abram, he's not even Abraham yet, he's Abram. The Lord said to Abram, Go from your country and from your kindred and from your father's house, i.e., go from everything you've ever known, right, to the land that I will show you, i.e., the land you've never seen, and I will make you a great nation. And I will bless you, and I will make your name great, so that you will be a blessing. And I will bless those who bless you, and to him who dishonors you I will curse. And in all you, and in all the families of the earth shall be blessed because of you. This is a significant promise to a guy who is distant from this God, and God said, I choose you, Abraham, not because of who you are, but because of who I am. And I will bless those who bless you, and I will curse those who curse you, and you will become a great nation. In fact, your children will be more numerous than the stars. This is, you are going to just, your mind is going to be blown. In fact, you took Abraham out, and he's like, can you count the stars? And Abraham tried and tried and tried and failed. And God said, guess what? Your children are going to be more than those. This is mind-boggling promise that God was going to start a people with Abraham. And then if you flip to chapter 15 in Exodus, you see something else about this promise. And, and we don't often read this part of the promise because the blessing part is really exciting. I'm going to bless those who bless you, and I'm going to curse those who curse you. And this is like a really exciting promise, right? So it will go well with you because I have my hand on you. Now, here's the second half of what God is going to do with these people. Verse, uh, chapter 15, verses 13 through 14. And it says this. Then the Lord said to Abram, Know for certain that your offspring, the ones that will be more numerous than the stars, will be sojourners in a land that is not theirs, 
and they will be servants there, and they will be afflicted for 400 years. But I will bring judgment on the nation they serve, remember? Because I will curse those who curse you. And afterwards, your people will come out with great possessions. But as for you, you will go to your fathers in peace, and you'll be buried at a good old age. I.e., your descendants are going to be more numerous than the stars. Whoever blesses you, I'll bless. Whoever curses you, I will curse. But your kids and descendants are going to be enslaved by another nation for a really long time. And you aren't going to get to see any of that because you're going to die before this promise takes root. That's the promise that God made Abraham. And the book of Exodus lives that out. God's people who were stuck in Egypt for 400 years, because there's a 400-year gap between the end of Genesis and the beginning of Exodus. God's people were those ones enslaved in Egypt. That's the nation of Israel. That's the children and descendants of Abraham. He had promised to make them a great nation, and he did. But he also said that great nation would be enslaved. God is a God of his promises. He promised to do a lot of things. But one of the things that we need to see in Exodus is that he's a God of promise. What he promises, he will fulfill. Some things are not yet fulfilled, though they are promised, right? And so that leads us to look forward with expectancy to things that are promised yet not fulfilled. People of Israel were promised that they would be a great nation, and they had become one. They were also told they would be enslaved. Part of that promise, though, was that they would not be enslaved forever and that they would be, they will come out with great possessions. But when? They were waiting for the fulfillment of that promise. Let me get to this idea of presence, another theme in Exodus. That God is present with his people. Wherever his people are, he is present with them. Um, Flip to, uh, flip to Exodus chapter 2. Finally get to Exodus here, since we're studying it. Exodus chapter 2. Um, and this is when the people are enslaved. They are brutally treated by Pharaoh, right? For 400 years. Can you imagine? If your whole cultural identity was one of enslavement, if everything you ever knew was being beaten and made to work for someone else's good. 400 years of that defined them as a culture. It says this, During these many days, verse 23, the king of Egypt died, and the people of Israel groaned because of their slavery. And they cried out for help. It doesn't say they cried out to God, though. Do you notice that? Because they lived 400 years without understanding who they were in relationship to this God. They just cried out for help. Their cry for rescue from slavery came up to God, though, because God is present with them. And God heard their groaning. And God remembered his covenant with Abraham and with Isaac and with Jacob. And God saw the people of Israel, and God knew. I love that passage, and we're going to study that one in more detail in the next week or two. But it's the idea that God was with them throughout these 400 years. That God was with his people while they were suffering while they were waiting for the promise to be fulfilled, while they were waiting for the right time for God to enact. And that's why when it says, and God knew, that phrase there 
implies an action. It implies that God saw and it was time to act on behalf of his people. God was about to fulfill a promise to his people and he was present with them while he was doing it. So he fulfills promises and he is present. Now, um, when it came time to uh, fulfill more of his promises to free his people, he demonstrated power. God is very powerful, and you'll see this in the book of Exodus over and over and over again. I can't make a staff turn to a snake. Right? I can't turn water to blood. I can't make the sun go dark. No man can, but God can. God is powerful. He's powerful over creation. He's powerful over people. He's powerful over everything, because he's God. And when it was time to fulfill his promises, he demonstrated his power, ultimate power, over the nation of Egypt because they assumed they were the preeminent power of the day. They were the ruling, reigning nation. He demonstrated his authority over Pharaoh, who had basically declared himself a god and said no one was higher than he was. And God was like, right, yeah, let me show you a few things. And he demonstrated his power over the little g gods of Egypt. Every plague that God inflicted upon Egypt was a slap in the face to a specific Egyptian god. So one by one he said, you think your god's got power? Guess what? He doesn't. You think that god's got power? Nope. Not that one either. None of them do. I am the Lord is what he was teaching Egypt. He was demonstrating his power. But the last plague was a a challenging plague. The last plague was the angel of death. The last plague was the one that was going to be a significant moment in the life of Israel. It was the moment of formation for them. Now we know from Genesis that sin requires sacrifice. It happened in the garden. God sacrificed some animals and covered Adam and Eve's sin uh, with, the, uh, with the skins of those animals. The very first sacrifice for sin. And then from that point out, God said, okay, sacrifice for sin is how we're going to do things. Sin must be punished, but let's take some sacrifice for that. Um, then we get to Exodus. The people of Israel had lived apart from God for a long time, 400 years. They cried out for help, but they didn't even cry out for help to God. God heard, though. God says, okay, these are my people. I want to form them to be like me, but... I need them to connect with me. I need them to obey me. I need them to trust me because what I'm about to do in their life is going to take some faith. And if they don't have faith in my direction, it's going to be very difficult for me to lead them to become the people that I would like them to be. So he said, here's the last plague. I'm going to send an angel of death over the nation of Egypt. And it's going to kill the firstborn in every home in the land. That means Israel and Egypt, all the peoples. Any home, except those homes that do a very specific thing. Take a lamb and sacrifice it. Take the blood of that lamb and paint it over the doorpost of your house. And that night, when the angel of death passes through the valley of Egypt, if there is blood on the doorpost of your house, God says, my angel of death will pass over your home and your family will be safe. Because the lamb died instead of those in your home. This is the night of Passover. And so Passover night came, and the Israelites, in faith, painted blood over their doorposts, and the houses of Egypt did not. And there was a great cry that night, as many, many sons of Egypt died, including Pharaoh's son, 
Pharaoh said, get out. I'm done with these people and this God and his power. Get out. People of Israel trusted God and they picked up their belongings and they left, right? Because God rescued them. In fact, they didn't only leave, but they left and God fulfilled a promise, right? They took with them the spoils of Egypt. They were so ready to get rid of Israel and this problem that they had with Israel. They're like, take our gold and take our riches and take all of this stuff and just get out because you brought problems to us. And so they were freed from the slavery that they had been in bondage to for so long, 400 years, and they had been freed from it. And they left. And then when they left, they experienced something um, troubling, right? They got to the waters of the Red Sea, and Egypt decided to close in behind them. Because Pharaoh's heart was hard. And they panicked. Oh no! What are we going to do? We can't go forward. Water's there. Can't go backwards. Egypt is there. They're going to kill us. And they panicked. And they forgot that God, who is present among them, God, who fulfills his promises, God, who led them out of slavery in Egypt, wasn't going to do all that just to have them die, right? So God worked out this great plan, and again, he rescued his people. That's one of the themes that we see is rescue. God rescued his people from Egypt. He rescued his people from Egypt again at the Red Sea. He parted the waters. He rescued his people in the wilderness by providing food and water. He rescued his people over and over and over again. And yet the people said, oh, woe is us. Oh, if we could only go back to Egypt. Oh, my feet are tired. Oh, the sun is hot. Oh, I'm thirsty. Oh, I'm hungry. Are we there yet, right? <laughs> this attitude, right? They longed for Egypt so much. They said, you know, at least we knew what we were getting there. But we don't know how long we're going to be wandering. We don't know what the future holds for us. We don't know if we're going to like the promised land. We don't know if it's worth it. This is hard. Let's go back to Egypt. At least we know we get a square meal. We might get beaten, but at least we know what to expect. And sometimes the known, even if it's bad, seems like a better option than the unknown taken in faith. This is where Israel found themselves um, walking towards a rescue that they did not quite understand. The rescue that they were walking towards was not what they had experienced. It was not yet fully completed. It was something more that God would be forming. And it is something that we are still waiting for as well. Scripture tells us about this story. And we read about it as if it's the Old Testament and it's dead and gone and long past. But I might hazard to say that we are not too much unlike Israel. And if you read the book of Exodus, you might find yourself going, oh golly, that sounds a lot like me. That sounds a lot like my life. That sounds a lot like the way I live. That sounds a lot like our culture. That sounds a lot like the stuff I struggle with or we struggle with or we've gone through. And it's because it's our story, the book of Exodus. It's very relatable to now. Um, and as we study through the book of Exodus, I want us to really wrestle with the fact that this is our story. And that God is still working these things out in our lives. See, we're the recipients of a promise as well. 
Um, and if you flip in your Bibles to 1 John. Oh, no, don't. Bookmark. Okay. 1 John, chapter 2, verse 25, tells us exactly what this promise is that we are recipients of. And it says this, 1 John chapter 2, 25. And the promise he made to us is this, eternal life. If you want a promise, like, that's really good. That's, that's, that's a great promise, eternal life. God has promised us eternal life. And God, we read in scripture, is a God who keeps his promises, but he works his promises out over time. We are living right now with a promise that is not yet fulfilled, right? We have the hope of eternal life. We have trusted Jesus for our salvation, I hope. But we have not yet received the completion of that promise. We live with the hope that God will fulfill this promise, just like Israel lived with the hope that they would be released from bondage in Egypt. That they would make it to the promised land unscathed. That they would have a home that would be forever. That's what the hope of the promised land was for them. That they would have a home that they could settle down in and be safe forever. For us, heaven is that. For our eternity. That we would have a home where life is good. Right? Our promised land. Thrown with milk and honey. And then we have the promise of God's presence. Um, when the New Testament rolled about, right? God sent his son Jesus to the world, wrapped him in flesh. He was man and God, miraculous thing that God did. And he did that so God would be present among us. The word incarnate dwells among us. And when we read in the gospel of John, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us, the word dwelt there is actually the word tabernacled, um, uh, which is a reference to Exodus when they built the tabernacle and God's presence was physically with them. We have to understand that everything in Exodus points us to Jesus. And so when we read in the New Testament that God tabernacled among us, it means that God took up his residence among his people. Wherever they went, he went. And that's what Jesus came to demonstrate, that I really am with you, I really am present among you. Wherever you go, I go, I wanna teach you and I wanna love you and I wanna encourage you how to love and I wanna help refine and define a people that is unique in the world, unique because of who I am and who I am making you to be. And then this Jesus, this God who loved us so much, he willingly sacrificed himself perfect and spotless, without sin his entire life, the spotless lamb, right? The Passover lamb. He went to the cross and he died on the cross in our place for our sins, right? And when in faith we look at him and we say we trust that he did that for us, then his blood is painted on the doorposts of our hearts. And we read in scripture that the penalty for sin is death, but that passes over us when we have trusted Christ for the forgiveness of our sins. That's where Passover comes from, and that's how it enters into the New Testament. Christ is our Passover lamb, and he purchased us from slavery and freed us from sin, and we leave the old life behind when we trust Christ. Um, if you read in John chapter 8, where am I? John chapter 8, verse 31 through 36. 31. I love this passage. 
Jesus is talking to the Jews in this passage. He said to the Jews who had believed in him, If you abide in my word, and then you are truly my disciples, then you will know the truth, and the truth will set you free. And they answered him, We are offspring of Abraham and have never been enslaved to anyone. And I wonder, have they read the Torah? Like, did they read their history? Do they know how arrogant of them to say, we are offspring of Abraham. We are descended from Abraham. So we are fancy and nobody has ever enslaved us. So there's some pride in their heart right there. Um, He says, how is it that you say we will become free because we're not enslaved to anything? And Jesus answered them, really? Really? Listen, I say to you, everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. Let that one sit with you for a moment. Everyone who commits sin is a slave to sin. And the slave doesn't remain in the house forever, but the son remains forever. So if the son sets you free, then you will be free indeed. He's trying to point the Jews to something. He's trying to say, listen. I know you are descendants of Abraham. You've been enslaved as a people in the past, but I'm not talking about a nation that's enslaving you. I'm talking about your sin that's enslaving you. And there is not a Moses to lead you. In fact, there is something better than a Moses to lead you. There is a better mediator, is what the book of Hebrews says, and that's me, and I am the son, and I can set you free. Just trust me, follow me, and I will lead you to a better promise. Jesus' death rescued us from the consequences of our sin and made us right with God and justified us just as if we had never sinned. But there are times, if we're honest, when our flesh attacks, right? We say things we shouldn't say. We do things we shouldn't do. Um, Fear overtakes us. Um, The unknown looms before us. God says, I'd really like you to pick up and go this direction like i've never been to that land before i don't have any google map for that that's a long journey you want me to what now with who i don't know i mean let me pray about it and see if you really want me to do that i'm pretty comfortable where i am imagine if abraham had said that we struggle with that sometimes temptation sometimes to return to the habits of the past is strong in our life but God is present among us. He was present with the, Egypt, uh, with the Israelites in that pillar of fire, right? That went before them at nighttime and the cloud that went before them that day. Visibly present. And then when they got to Sinai, the big cloud over the mountain that rumbled so much that the people were scared of it. Because they knew that's where God was. And they were scared to be in the presence of God because they knew they were sinful. And yet, in the New Testament, we don't have a pillar of fire, do we? We don't have a cloud that goes before us by day. Um, In fact, Jesus isn't even walking on earth anymore, so sometimes we wonder, is God really present with us? But we have the Holy Spirit, right? In fact, it's another promise that God made us. I promise that when I leave, I will send a helper for you, a counselor for you, the Holy Spirit to you. And he he will be inside of you. And he will call you to repentance and to good works. And he will lead you to become more like me. But ultimately, we're living in this life that is kind of unfulfilled, right? 
We have a portion of the promise, but not the entirety lived out. We're kind of like Israelites walking through the wilderness. And day by day, we're trusting God for manna. And day by day, we're looking for the water that's coming from the rock. And day by day, we're walking towards something that we can't see and we haven't laid hold of. And we don't fully understand, but God promises us that it's there if we keep walking with it. And the Holy Spirit inside of us says, don't give up. Keep going. It might be hard. It might be challenging, but I am with you. I will not forsake you. I haven't forgotten you. I see and I know, and I will act on your behalf. Ephesians 3 reads this way. This is a prayer for spiritual strength. Israel needed that in the wilderness, and we need that now, I think, in our day. It's for this reason that I bow my knees before the Father whom every father in heaven and on earth is named, that according to the riches of his glory, he may grant you to be strengthened with power through his spirit in your inner being. God is with you, not just with you, but in you. And not just in you, but strengthening you. So that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, and that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may have the strength to comprehend with the saints what is the breadth and the length and the height and the depth, and to know the love of Christ that surpasses all knowledge, that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all we think or ask, according to the power at work within us, to him be the glory in the church and in Christ Jesus through all generations forever and ever. Amen. We are like Israel. This is our story. We are walking through a wilderness. Our culture is different than the way God wants us to live. And he is refining for himself a people unto himself that are holy and are the dwelling place of God. He is literally tabernacling in us, dwelling in us. This is a promise we can lay hold of because it's one we have now. And it's one that will enable us to keep walking towards the greater promise of eternal life moving forward. Um, this morning, I kind of want to ask the question of you, which of these themes kind of resonates with you? Which of these themes in your life kind of pokes your heart or your gut or your brain and you go, I've kind of forgotten that God has promised something to me. It's been a long time since I've felt his presence. Maybe completely forgotten God's power in my life, and I've worked hard and strived under my own effort. But I've forgotten that God is the one who actually acts and does and works. Maybe you've never actually trusted Christ's sacrifice for the forgiveness of your sins. Then it's time for you to give your heart to Christ and to trust him to lead you somewhere that you never thought you could go. All for your good and his glory. Or maybe you need a rescue. Maybe there's something that keeps drawing you back to Egypt and you need a rescue from that. What I like about what God did with Israel is he led them to a point of no return. Egypt behind them racing towards them, Red Sea in front of them, no way to cross it. 
right? And he did a great work, and he parted the waters. And I almost think that the greatest miracle was not the parting of the water, but the reclosing of it, because there was no way back, right? Maybe, maybe we need to recognize that God wants to do something in our life so that we don't go back. Maybe we need a rescue so that we can't turn back, and God can do that in our lives. He can, in your heart, wrench out all those things that don't need to be there, creating you a new heart and a new spirit. And so as we worship, as the team comes up and leads us, maybe you need to ask God, which one of those things do you want to reveal to me today? Which one of those things do you want to work in me? Maybe you don't even know, and you're just like, I don't know, Jesus, help, help me figure this out. Well, he'll do that too. Um, he is faithful to his promises. And his promise is that we will have eternal life. And so he will work that out in your life if you are willing to listen. Father, we're thankful for your word. We're thankful for the ways that you have worked in our lives, for the promises that you have fulfilled and are fulfilling, and for the ones we have yet to lay hold of, that are yet to come, that you are still working out, we have hope. We have hope because we have the Holy Spirit who speaks hope to us, who reveals truth to us, who testifies of Jesus Christ and his love for us. We ask in these moments as we worship and pray that you would encourage us for the journey that you have for us, that you would strengthen us from the inside out, that you would reveal your power from Ketchikan Church of the Nazarene. To learn more about our church or to support our ministries, you can visit ktnnaz.org.